Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Welcome to Series 3, Episode 9. Today is with Sarah Grace. Sarah is a clinical nurse specialist with the bone marrow transplant team here at UCLH. We talked to Sarah about her role as a CNS and at what point she gets involved with patients that are going on to have bone marrow transplants. So we talked with Sarah a bit about the consenting process and some of the follow-up when the transplant's finished. Also just about some of the difficulties of, of running a donor search, of finding the right donor, and then organizing for a collection and harvest and ultimately getting the cells to the right area, to the right patient and infused and the difficulties around making that all happen seamlessly. What's really good about this episode is that Sarah can give us some, shed some light on positive aspects of bone marrow transplants. So patients that have had transplants and are doing really well and maybe going back to work or going on holiday. So this is something really good for inpatient teams to listen to that maybe only see one side of the journey. And we also speak to Sarah about her career in transplantation and talk a little bit about her previous experience working at other hospitals and get a bit of a sense of some of the the newer practices in transplant and what it used to be like with the fuller intensity regimes and how much more difficult they were to get patients through. What is the role of a transplant coordinator? Or would you call, are you a transplant coordinator or a clinical nurse specialist, or is it a bit of both? I think both. Okay. So I prefer to think of myself as a nurse specialist because if you say coordinator, that um, suggests a very administrative role, and a lot of what yeah. we do is administrative. Unfortunately, there's too much admin for us in the transplant team particularly, but it's a lot more than that. As well as coordinating the care and planning transplants, we support and guide and inform patients throughout that whole process from hopefully from beforehand to when they're back in the clinic afterwards and and even months and years afterward when they're recovering still. So yes, there is a lot of coordination and that for us means from the point at which we know when a patient needs a transplant, organising everything from their tissue typing, finding a donor, and then scheduling the actual transplant, which involves many other different um, (laughs) problematic (laughs) things, including, you know, like TBI and admission dates and accommodation, and then them patient not being unwell at the point that they're coming in, sorting out all their pre-transplant investigations, that's disease restaging, organ function tests, blood tests, repeat tissue typing tests, you know, all of those things. There's a big long checklist of things we mm. have to have done and they have to be done in a certain time frame. And that's straightforward, mostly when people are local and if they're being treated in UCLH when we know that they mm. need a transplant, that's much easier for us. But a lot of our patients are referred in from other centres and some of those centres are very distant and people don't want to travel to London, they definitely don't want to travel to London several times before Mm. they come in for their transplant. And worse than that, they definitely don't want to travel to London once or twice a week when they've gone home and they're feeling rubbish after Mm. a transplant. Mm. So there is a lot of juggling and keeping lots of balls in the air. And the thing is that when we're doing that for one patient, we're not doing it for just one patient, we're doing it for seven or eight patients each at a time probably at at the moment. And that's within a team of eight other CNSs who are also doing the same thing with using the same resource, plus a separate team of CAR T cell nurses who are doing the organising those patients, and then autologous stem cell nurses who are doing the same thing for a lot of other patients. So, getting the lab time 
allocated fairly between everybody <laughs> and the apheresis time and the beds in ambulatory care and on the wards and the nurses who can give the infusions. So trying to make sure that everyone knows what everyone else is doing so that you don't book 20 patients all to have an infusion on the same day, mm. it gets complicated. When do you meet the patient and what does that look like? When was the first time you have contact and what kind of things would you be talking about? So uh, uh, here at UCH, the CNS is, the transplant CNSs are the first of the team to make contact with the patient once we know they're definitely having a transplant. And if it's a patient with acute leukaemia, say, we usually meet them or try to meet them some point during their second course of treatment. So we've got plenty of time to have more than one conversation with them about a transplant. It's a very complex procedure. It involves a threat to their life and, and even maybe their quality of life after the treatment. So we want to be able to deliver that information gently and with yeah. some empathy, but also accurately. So obviously some people need two or three conversations to be able to do that so that it suits them. Obviously they have another consultation with one of the transplant consultants in the clinic, but we try and inform them as much as we can before that, so that in that appointment, which is quite close usually to the time they come in once all their workup's done, they're not hearing surprising and upsetting information, and that they can really concentrate on what the doctor's saying and ask important questions they still might have. So you get involved quite early on then, we try don't to, you, from absolutely. the second cycle? So your relationship is I'd imagine built up quite a lot before they get into transplant so they can trust you and you've built up a rapport so that's good. I didn't realise it was that early actually. Yeah, yeah sometimes it, it's not that early and when patients are coming from other, other hospitals, hospitals yes, it's not always course. convenient yeah. to do that but we try and speak to people on the phone if we can. Hmm. It's not always as, e as easy but yeah. or encourage the CNSs in the local hospitals to use the same information that we use. Um, do you, do you support them a lot because I imagine other DGHs don't have transplants so do you, is there a lot of phone calls to you to support the CNSs in other hospitals? Yeah we have done and with uh, there are a couple of centres that we have a lot of referrals from and we have a bit more contact with those CNSs and we're able to use them and their resources a, a little bit more so it works both ways. It's um, like a shared thing for some centres. Almost. Almost, yeah. Unfortunately, patients still have to travel here very regularly to start with, um, and that's really arduous if it's a three-hour car journey before mm. clinic. Mm. But, yeah, we do use them. Do you only start that conversation when you've got a donor lined up, or at what point might this... Might... Mostly, but if we know that a patient's very... or we hear from you guys mm. that a patient's very anxious or has already got lots of concerns about transplant because perhaps they've been told they definitely will need a transplant mm. then we have seen we do see we would see people whenever they would, would like to see us yeah. there's a bit of balance i suppose about our time mm. and the risks or things they might want to know might be depend based on the who their donor is going to be but um you can have a very broad discussion early on if that's what patients want as long as we've got time to do that. Yeah. How do you break down that conversation because I would imagine they'll want to know everything but surely that's just too much information without scaring them too much about what's to come. So well, I always start by trying to find out what they already know or mm -hmm. understand and we start by trying to explain or understand what they know about why they need to have a transplant. So do they know that they've got a high-risk disease that might only be cured with a transplant? 
and then just explain very, very basically how it works. You know, we get rid of their unhealthy stem cells and replace them with donor healthy donor stem cells that will replace all their blood cells and then, and then most importantly give them a new immune system which will keep them in remission ultimately hopefully for those that have had chemotherapy before then you move into quite a familiar zone which mm. is sort of comforting for everybody because you can talk to <laughs> them about chemotherapy yeah. because the initial phase of the transplant unless they're having radiotherapy is very similar to what they've already experienced. So yeah. they have chemotherapy, that makes them feel rubbish. The counts go down, they get fevers, blah, 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 you know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's helpful to everyone because it means you can describe something that's familiar. It's much more difficult for patients perhaps who've, had myelo who've got myelofibrosis or maybe chronic myeloid leukemia who've never had chemotherapy before. Therefore, you're starting completely from scratch and you've got to explain all about the chemotherapy and how that will feel and side effects and mm. being in hospital for a long time. Uh, explaining the concept of ambulatory care is sometimes difficult mm. for people as well, especially if they've only had their treatment to date as an inpatient. They get very well nervous. Yeah, of course. Understandably, that being they can just ring the bell, can't they now? Yeah. And I think it's for the family as well, isn't it? Knowing that you're in hospital, they can kind of relax at home. Mm. I suppose the whole for some people they love ambulatory care. Some people they it's quite nerve wracking, isn't it? But mm. we spend a lot of our time as nurses explaining what it's like and trying to offer to take them over because it's quite daunting. Um, but some patients will just always prefer to be an inpatient, yeah. which is absolutely fine. Well, we try and encourage everyone to yeah. start off in ambulatory yeah. care, and especially for the reduced intensity transplants. It does benefit them, and most of them love it once they've been, yeah. once they've been there. So that's how we start off, by e explaining the process. So do you go in... Because obviously the consultant will do a talk. Is that together with them? Or no, we you usually go first. You're, so you're going it, first. So that is quite difficult and challenging because mm. you, you, you are at the beginning of what will you hope be a long and beautiful relationship. But we're usually the first ones to tell them the grim truth of transplantation. And they probably have been sold it already as a, a potential cure um, and, and their final treatment. And they've got sort of high expectations and hope for the transplant. And then we upset them by telling kind of taking them... taking the sheen off it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. By explaining what the pitfalls are and even that ultimately they may go through it and, it and their disease may still come back. As nurses, of course, none of us want to deliberately upset people. I guess it's a skill that you learn over time is that not everyone's the same. Some people want a lot of information. They want to be armed with the information. They feel like that gives them some control and power. And other people don't want to know anything. They just want to sign on the dotted line. Yeah. I think we've got a duty to let them know a little bit about what they're in for. Ethically and legally, we need to let them know a bit about the risks. But you tailor what you're going to say and how you say it very yeah, much you play to the individual what, what them, in front of yeah, you. Yeah, well, um, as we do all the time, don't we? It, you can go in one room and exactly. laugh and joke, and the next room you can go in and be very quiet, and the next room you can go in and swear and whatever. You, you kind of tailor your, your <laughs> exactly. where you are to... And, and yeah. you can break it down. So if you've reached a point where people are upset, then you don't have to keep... And you can tell, can't you, when yeah. the... Yeah. You, you can stop there and come back another day or hope, hope most of the time that's what you can do. Do people sometimes just go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that, no thank you? P I think people don't expect what we tell them about the recovery mm -hmm. uh, and how long that takes. Because that, that is very different from chemo, isn't it? Because once different. you're done with the chemo, then you're done. Yeah. But 
transplant just carries on for months. It does carry on for years. months and it's a bit sort of three steps forward and two steps back yeah. a lot of the yeah. time, which is yeah. really hard. It's hard to explain in a way that people will understand or accept and it's hard to live through as well. And the truth is that we don't always know exactly how a patient's recovery will go and older patients who are having unrelated donor transplants, their risk for difficulty is much higher in terms of general recovery. And so there are patients who perhaps at that point think that maybe their quality of life, even if it might be shorter, is worth keeping going until such time as, you know, that maybe their disease um, progresses and opt not to have a transplant. But they are very few. They're definitely in the minority. But most, however big the risks, will still... I mean, it's, it's a natural thing to believe yeah. that you're... We've all said that, haven't that. we? You know, when we talked as nurses, when we've talked, well, what would you do? And as much as you can see really bad complications and then patients that do really well, I think if you're in that position, I think most people would say, no, I want everything. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's part of why we like working in this sphere, isn't it? Probably, I imagine. Because, yeah. you know, I <laughs> chose haematology or, or transplant because it gave the opportunity to look after patients over a long period of time. And first of all, for me, that was on the ward. And that period of time was maybe months, six weeks or months rather. It was a long time ago when I started doing transplants, so it was a long time on the ward. But as a CNS, then it is even longer, and, and ideally it is months and years. And I think the things that the nurses on the ward don't see is that in clinic, most of the patients are doing really well. So on the ward, you see, you see them when they're really sick, you send them out when they're getting better. Hopefully you don't see them again too many times during those first months while they're recovering. Um, but then they're in clinic and they're doing things like going on holiday or starting mm. running again or going back to work. And you don't see that so much, and we do. So we get, we get the hard things yeah, where you you're looking after people end, over you? a long time <laughs> yeah. and you know, they're having a difficult time yeah. and maybe then they don't survive. And that's sad and tough, but you also get to see the people who are doing really well. Can we talk a little bit about the role of the donor? Because I know that's yes. what some people are really yeah. interested in. What what do you do with the tissue typing bloods, yeah. and then yeah. kind of how do you end up with a donor lined up, and then that Fine. sort of process a little so bit? So we get the typing bloods from the ward. We get them early as possible. Day one, or <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then the next thing we want to do is know whether people have got siblings that can be typed, and we hope very much that those siblings are in the UK and not far flung places around Difficult the visas. globe but in yeah. London a lot of our patients do have yeah. uh, siblings that are in very difficult to reach places but assuming you can you get blood from siblings and type them you only in the first instance type full siblings because there's still only a one in four chance that any of those would be matched and then if none of those are matched and you've exhausted your likely relative pool, then you move on to uh, an unrelated donor search. And there's a website that all the international donor registries feed into. So when we get the tissue typing report, we can punch the numbers in to the BMDW website and press go. And that gives us a good estimation of how many donors worldwide there might be for any patient and how well matched they look, sort of broadly speaking. Then we ask the Nolan to run a search and they do the same thing and then they get more specific details on those donors from the individual registries and they send us a report 
with recommendations of who they think we should type. We request typing from three donors at a time because each time you do that, you're spending quite a lot of money. Donor registries charge you for taking the blood test from a donor and sending it to you. And if they're sending it to you from America, they charge you a lot of money to do that. Mm -hmm. And then they get to the lab and then they, we get charged for the typing test as well. So it's a lot mm -hmm. of money. Then we get the reports and then we choose, hopefully, from those reports a donor. And a perfect donor would be someone who's 10 out of 10 matched or 12 out of 12 these days, if we can. And CMV matched, importantly, and then less importantly, things like gender and blood grouping. Yeah. So siblings best, fully matched unrelated donor next. And then haplotransplants, as you know, we're doing a lot more of those. So, so if you couldn't find a 10 out of 10 or 12 out of 12, then you'd be thinking... You'd still At the moment, we still use a 9 out of 10 over a haplo, but okay. though, you know, that, might, that may change. Uh, if you can't find a 9 out of 10 matched donor, then you would go back to a haplo. So potentially this takes you a couple of weeks to, to sort of get the tissue typing back and then see what sort of the likelihood is of finding a match yeah. through a database and then yeah. getting bloods and then verifying the, the tissue typing of that donor. Yes. So that's all done without confirmation of whether the patient is actually going to have a transplant. We do that, yeah. We can, I mean, because we can modify that if it turns out you know, once you've gone done the typing that the patient's got very good risk disease and you don't need to do anything else, well, then you can stop at that point. Mm. But it can take a while. So each time you request a sample, the donor's got to be available in wherever they are in the country that they're from, not on holiday, to go and give their blood sample. So a search typically, if, if people have got a lot of donors based in Europe and the UK, probably takes three or four weeks minimum once you start the search and you've already spent 10 days or so doing the tissue typing on the patient and that's if you haven't waited to type their siblings in the interim so it's much quicker than it used to be because donors are much better typed than they used to be so you can steer your search much more uh, precisely from the start it, it still can take a lot of time and then you when we know we want to use a certain donor from say from an unrelated donor registry then we have to fill in a whole load of forms send those off, ask for specific dates, make sure that you're going to get cells coming from, say, the states that aren't going to arrive so late on a Friday, we can't give them, or actually you've forgotten about the time difference, so they're arriving on a Saturday morning. And it's also got to fit with the TBI slot. So we, we really only got two slots a week for multi-fraction TBI, and the private service, the adolescent service, and us are all fighting for those same slots, but also so are Gosh and Mary's. So... It's a very limited and difficult resource to manipulate to our advantage. And if, the do if you've got a TBI slot but the donor can't meet it, you can have a very difficult time then trying to marry the two that isn't in six months' time when the patients relapse from their disease and it's too late to transplant them. So do you give the donor a couple of different dates that you'd like to aim for to see when they're available to do we it? We usually just give them one okay. and hope they can do it. Is there a pretty good completion if you if you say, oh, I'd like blood from this person, like, are they likely to it's quite do it? A, or there's is quite it... a high attrition, or there's, there was a very high attrition rate with okay. uh, US donors. Okay. That's improved a bit, but we avoid the US if there's lots in the U. So we, we use UK donors first choice, hmm. then Europe, yeah. and Germany have the biggest registry. So once a donor is requested... They, they have to have a, a medical to make sure that the donation won't do them any harm, but also that their cells aren't going to do our patient any harm. We don't want any nasty viruses incoming yeah. with the cells. So that has to be scheduled, and we have to have all the results of those tests, some of which take several days, back, signed off 
before we start the patient's conditioning because yeah. you don't want to started, find out yeah. after you've given the TBI that the donor's got HIV and they can't donate or yeah. So that's another thing that can be difficult timing-wise. And if they're in an exotic part of the world, there's a whole load of extra infectious disease tests that you need to add on. Lots of tropical viruses, yeah. malaria, Zika, all of those things. Mm. Oh, Zika. That we sometimes have to test here because the local lab won't do it because it's an endemic thing and they don't, they're not bothered about it. They don't care about testing it, but we do. So that can add to the difficulty of scheduling too. So sometimes it can be quite straightforward and sometimes just really complicated. Incredibly, incredibly <laughs> as complicated yes. as you can make it. Yes. And then the patient arrives to start their treatment and they've picked up a cold and you have to stop and cancel everything and rearrange <laughs> it all for two weeks time. That's great. So you'd freeze the cells and then and then delay you their might, conditioning you if might. you could. Or... If you could reschedule them and have them fresh if it was straightforward to do that, then you would try and do that. So you could with a sibling probably, but with an unrelated donor, that becomes very difficult. If he was expecting to just receive cells, count them, put a label on them, give them back to you to put some Campath in and infuse, yeah. he, w he won't be happy if I then say, actually, Stu, can you freeze these now? Because that's a much longer process for him. And if he's already got 70,000 other things booked in, that's not. Do we still offer the choice for a unrelated donor to give bone marrow instead? It's always their choice. We, Do we give express both our preference. No, we nearly always want PBSC, mm -hmm. except for, I guess, aplastics. Sometimes we want, we prefer marrow, although these days for adults, we, we don't request marrow from unrelated donors for anyone, really. It's okay. rare that people want to donate marrow. More frequently, you get the case where they don't want to donate marrow or can't because of a particular medical reason. And then you have to decide if you're going to be confident that you're going to collect PBSCs because the backup, if you can't collect enough from an unrelated donor, is that they would go to theatre and have a bone yeah. marrow harvest. So mm. you always need to check that they would still be okay to do that. Exactly. And if they're not, you're told that when you get the donor clearance, then you have to decide if you would go ahead... I mean, in reality, you almost always get more than enough cells. And we, you know, we see anti-Nolan donors here and do those medicals. On mm. So it's, it's a good insight then when you're trying to get it back in the other direction mm. to know exactly what you need to remember to ask for or what you need to test. <laughs> we would like to be on the wards a lot more. I think the, one of the problems with the transplant CNS job is that it does involve so much admin and getting everybody into the right place at the right time so that a patient can have their transplant. The other thing about being a CNS is that you, you are often and you're supposed to be a clinical expert and you so on a ward round you can sometimes offer um, advice about something you might have seen previously or but also you can learn from from what you're seeing too so it's it's a shame we don't get there enough and we really hope that we will and things settle down a bit in the next few months that we will be able to do that again. One thing I would like to say, it, which is that at UCH, I guess the transplant team works a bit different. Transplant CNS or coordinator team works different than it does at other centres, I think. Um, at other centres and big centres, they sp split the work up a bit, sort of before and after transplant. Right. Okay. Um, or other places have um, more coordinate they have BMT coordinators that are nurses and then yeah, CNSs okay. and the CNS tends to be the one who does the after stuff pr probably like in late that situation and things isn't it yeah because I, mean, I, I did a coordinator at BMT for a while years ago we, we don't do that here because we think that that you know that 
journey is really understanding the whole of the journey is really important and if you're talking to someone before and you know contributing contributing to the consent of that patient you need to be able to understand what the other side can be like both yeah. the good bits and the less good um, outcomes and if you don't know those if you haven't worked with patients who've had both of those things it can, it's difficult to explain to somebody what it's what it's like if you only yeah. know the pre bit Hematology is such a small specialty anyway that to further specialise and break down your role, there's a lot of disadvantages. It's good to know the whole journey. Exactly. And I think we, we operate the same way on the wards, mm, really. Yeah. Yeah. We want everyone to be able to do everything yeah. and know everything. Exactly. Yeah. Do you mind if we do, um, if you say um, a bit about yourself so we can kind of put at the beginning? About oh. your... Yeah, just a brief okay, so uh, journey. Okay, so I started my training... Um, I did old school, old fashioned nursing training uh, in March 88. I started. And I got, when I qualified, I did a year's job on the ward I finished on in my third year. So Where I did it like that? surgical nursing. That was at Charing Cross. Okay. So I did a year's urology. And then I moved to the Hammersmith. I got a job on the transplant unit as a D grade, not even a band five then. And that was in 1992. And bone marrow transplants were really different things then. So there was a lot more GVHD. Yeah, it was different. It was pre-reduced intensity transplants. So, yeah, they were very different. And we were, I was telling someone the other day, we used to put up CPAP by ourselves. We used to, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was a very different ball game then. Anyway, I worked there for about, on the ward there for about six years, six and a half years. And then I moved to the Royal Free to do a research nurse job in haematology because I needed a bit of a break from the ward. Yeah. But actually, when I got a bit of a break from the ward, it turned out I didn't really want it. I didn't like it. I didn't like doing research nursing because it was too much paperwork. And then I was fortunate because the medical fellow who worked in the BMT team left and the head of the department asked me if I would look after the donor searches. And I said I would if I could be can I be a clinical nurse? But we didn't have any clinical nurse. There were no clinical nurse specialists really? in haematology at the Royal Free at that point. Right. So I, I said, yeah, but I want to, I'll do that if you let me be a clinical nurse specialist she for the, the transplant patients. At the, at the Royal Free at that point. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's great though. That so, was great. <laughs> so that was, it was good. It was great because I was the only one and you could really do what you want. It was a real... <laughs> <laughs> Because you could, you could, you could make the job be what yeah, you wanted you it could, to be. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a really good opportunity. But it doesn't, it, that doesn't work in the then as you get, as, as more of you come and you have to be a bit more rigid about what you do and you have to, but so, so that's how that started. And that job was both coordinating transplants and being a nurse specialist support, you know, information, etc. But it's great. It is, it's a great job. Transplants fab. I love it. I always have. It's, it's fascinating. It's a constantly moving environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, most of all, the patients are lovely and it's a difficult time for them. And the, the more we can do to help them get through it with the least scars, the, the better. What does a typical patient journey look like after the patient's discharge for like, what would you, what would be a patient who does really well post-transplant? Okay. What does that look like? So when they them? first go home, we tell them to expect to feel knackered for a few weeks. They come to clinic once or twice, the first week probably, and then it's weekly thereafter for at least probably three months. And during that time, there is a lot of additional probably back and forth. So that's the time I guess you're most likely to see viral reactivation. Mm -hmm especially CMV, although we've got a new drug we're about to be able to use, Latermavir, 
for CMV prophylaxis. So all those patients with CMV positive shouldn't be reactivating. So that should help a lot with having to use gancyclovir mm. and foscarnet for CMV. So fingers crossed for that one. But we're doing a lot more myelofibrosis patients these days, yeah. and those patients have ATG in their conditioning, and that predisposes you or makes you a bit more likely to have EBV reactivation yeah. than if you've had Campath. So a bit more PTLD. We, we try and prep them for that before. We tell them again at the point that they're going home that all of this is normal, mm-hmm. that um, it's, it's going to be, it's going to feel tough being at home. They're going to feel tired. They probably don't have a good appetite when they go home. So they've got to rehab a bit and they have to do that at home. And we need to try and not bring them back to hospital more frequently than we have to because that's a long old day in clinic. Mm-hmm. Blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, maybe during those first few months. Sometimes people need a lot of blood transfusions early on and that might be because they were needing a lot before they had the transplant and the you know the red cells from the donor haven't grown yet. People often need to come back for fluids and electrolytes because they're not drinking enough at home and then you know they get an infection and they get a virus a cold or a tummy bug or something and then they have to come back in to have that sorted out or they get graft host disease most of the time, GVHD can be managed with cream or tablets, or but occasionally people need to come back in for IV treatment or even sometimes antibody treatment as well. So, as I say, we, we come and see them on the ward before they go home to try and give them some of that information again, to remind them, of, you know, to tell them the practicalities of coming to clinic, make sure they know how to book their transport, make sure they're on the transport list, make sure they know what to tell us about and phone us up and report to us when they get sick because they're likely to get a fever and they're likely to need need us. Remind them that they're not going to get better by themselves at this point. I mean, some people are back at work at three months because they insist on doing that. That's not, you know, on a building site. That's maybe yeah, on their laptop. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but at that key, and that certainly helps some people, you know, just getting on with it is... Back to some kind of normality. Yeah. We don't tell them, you know, we don't tell them to live in a bubble. We tell them to keep away from people with infections, but we encourage them to get out in the fresh air a bit, to go to the cinema when it's quiet, to go and have lunch out if they're somewhere quiet, see their friends as long as they're not sick, Mm. you know, to have a bit of normal life because otherwise what was the point in doing all of that? Mm. And, you know, for some people that's exactly what happens and they they just do really, really well. But um, there are others who have a really rough time, lots of problems. Because for lots of them, they can still be positive about the, this will be a temporary, you know, these temporary setbacks. So if all goes well, you see them twice weekly, then weekly. And then when, when does it stop? We, don't, you would, so you would we, used, to, we used to see transplant patients in clinic forever. Yes. Like until they died. Yes. Or we did. And, but we've stopped that here now. So most transplant centres still see patients for annual follow-up right. forever. But we started, when we merged, because the clinics were so huge, we looked at those who were coming once a year and we started to discharge people who were five years or more out, well, no consequences of transplant that were identifiable. We make sure they know what the you know, red flags are for whether they think their disease might be coming back again, but they probably know that better than yeah. we do. And they can still phone us if they think they've got a transplant-related problem. And for some pe- some people get very anxious and nervous mm. about not coming to see us once yeah. a year as if a blood count once a year is going to protect you from anything. Yeah. But others are absolutely delighted and really can see it as a, a celebration and a good thing. Never yeah. have to darken UCH's doors again. Yeah. Yeah.